that ye be not judged. Now, how many times have you had that biblical quote thrown back in your face? You know, I've got a feeling that that verse is quoted more often than John 3.16. And it's usually quoted in King James English. Judge not that ye be not judged. It's often quoted after someone has made a judgment about a particular behavior. And it's quoted as if it were the Lord's last word on judgment. But it's not. It's not. In reality, that verse introduces Christ's teaching on judgment as found in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we read further, we discover that he goes on to make it clear that we are, in fact, supposed to make judgments. However, we are to use the right standards. We are to examine ourselves first. And perhaps surprisingly, we are to only judge fellow believers. Let's take a look at what might be called some pearls of judgment this morning and see if we can't get a better understanding of what's expected of us in this area of judgment. The first pearl is use the right standard. We're in Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, the word Jesus used for judge is the common word for judge, which primarily means to separate, to select, or to choose, and to determine, or to judge. It's the Greek word kinos, from which we get our word sitting. And it can therefore mean everything from making a, a simple choice between two options to pronouncing final judgment on someone. Now, obviously, we know that we are not to pronounce final judgment on anyone. That is God's job. But Jesus isn't saying here that we're not to make any choices or that we aren't to be discerning. He isn't even telling us that we can't judge someone's behavior. In fact, he tells us in other places to judge. In John 7, 24, we read, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We're commanded to judge with righteous judgment. So contrary to the insistence of some, we are to make judgments in life. We have to. See, every time we make a decision, we're making a judgment. So Jesus obviously isn't saying don't make judgments. What he's saying is be careful how you judge. Because the way you judge, you will be judged. critical, judgmental spirit, we can expect others 
to be harsh and critical and judgmental with us. And if we take it a step further and condemn someone for their actions, we can expect God to condemn us for our actions. You know, perhaps the best commentary on this verse is actually found back in the sixth chapter, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If we refuse to show mercy and grace when judging someone's behavior, we cannot expect God to show mercy and grace when judging now, what do we mean by showing mercy and grace? Does that mean we just overlook everything? No. We cannot overlook sin in the hopes that God will overlook our sin. You know, God cannot overlook sin and not be a righteous God. He, he, in order to be righteous, He has to stand firm. And we cannot overlook sin and still judge with the righteous judgment that Jesus commanded of us in John Righteousness. Now, how do we do that? How do we, how do we make righteous judgments? Well, simply by judging as God judges. And guess what? God hasn't left us guessing about how He judges. In fact, He has already passed judgment on many things, declaring them to be right or wrong. And that doesn't change. His judgment does not So when we declare such actions or behaviors to be sinful, we are not passing judgment on them. God has already done so. All we're doing is letting His judgment, His righteous judgment, be made known. Now, we've got to be careful and make certain we've read it correctly and we understand exactly what He has said. If we said it, we share it, we are not the judge. If he hasn't directly spoken about something we're called upon to make a judgment about, and there are many things that fall into that category, I think the best we can do is look for his judgment on similar actions and behaviors. And then when we make a judgment call, doing our very best to apply the principles and standards that it appears that he used in making that judgment. We can make judgments based on other judgments that God has made. We make a judicial opinion on something that's already been established. And we may indeed be called to do that because not everything, every behavior, every action is judged by God in his word. Okay? So we have to accept that. However, Such judgments are offered as our opinion, not as the judgment revealed in God's Word. We can't say God says this if God doesn't say this. Okay? We can say, I believe God says this based on His Word. 
report carefully and prayerfully and righteously make judgment in all things. His revealed judgments and our judicial opinions are to be made graciously and mercifully. We want to be mercifully and gracefully judged. We will be graciously and mercifully in judgment. How? How can we be certain that we're doing it right? Jesus told us. Using a very interesting illustration. He told the theft was the shopkeeper. And why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, how can you say to your brother, oh, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You're a hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, if we're going to judge righteously, we've got to see clearly. We can't have any logs in our eyes. (laughs) Now, I don't know if this is Jesus' sense of humor coming out here. It's pretty funny. Or maybe he's just quoting a a proverb similar to, uh, you know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Either way, it's a ridiculous picture. Having someone with a log in their eye trying to take a speck out of someone. You know, and if you went to have your eyes examined and the optometrist had a log, a two-by-four, or, or a plank sticking out of his eye, would you let him check your eyes? No, no way. I mean, you'd run to the next one, even if it didn't cost more. <laughs> but that's the picture Jesus paints for us. Someone with a log sticking out of their eye trying to examine someone else's eye or just trying to get a speck out of their eye. It's ridiculous. There's no more ridiculous than our looking for specks, faults, in someone else's life when we have even bigger faults in our own life or maybe even the same faults in our own life. You know, it is true that what looks like in someone else's eyes generally feel like a log in our own. We better be careful. Now, I don't think that means we have to be perfect, faultless, before we can point out faults in someone else's life. If that were the case, we could never do it. In fact, sometimes we see faults even more clearly when we're struggling with ourselves. So we better not be hypocritical pointing out someone else's faults. We better not take a holier-than-thou attitude when unconfessed sins are obviously sticking out of our life. We've got to acknowledge our faults and at least be working on them before we can attempt to point out someone else's faults. And then notice, that the reason we're looking for this speck is to help our brother get it right. Not to demean him for having one. Years ago, when Matt and I went to Wisconsin to ride the bike trail, 
He had a real problem with bugs getting in his eyes. I don't know how many times we stopped to look for bugs. I found one. I didn't point a finger at him and lecture him on the foolishness of getting bugs in his eyes. I just helped him get it out. Now, I may have offered a little fatherly advice on how to avoid it, but my desire was to help him, not to make him feel bad for getting bugs in his eyes. And that's the way we ought to be when helping our brothers find and deal with sin in their lives. And do notice, it's our brothers that we're attempting to help today. That brings us to our final point. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw out your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. verse is often quoted out of context. Deeper in context, Jesus is still talking about dogs. Pearls he's talking about are pearls of judgment. And he uses some terminology that's a little bit harsh. You know, the Jews referred to Gentiles, to non-believers, as dogs and swine. I don't think that was the politically correct use that terminology today, but when Jesus said it, it was understood, and when he actually told the Canaanite woman that he wouldn't help her because it wasn't good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, she wasn't offended by it. She simply said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table, and she got what she wanted. Her daughter was healed. Jesus never considered the woman a dog. He understood what he was saying. And he isn't really calling unbelievers dogs and swine here either. He's simply using what was then a culturally accepted term or terminology to make a very powerful point. You wouldn't give holy meat from the altar to wild dogs that roam Palestinian cities. Neither would you throw your pearls out like corn or peas for the hogs to eat. If you did, and they tried to eat them, only to discover that you had served them something that was inedible, they would attack you. They would feel as if you had deceived them, not realizing, of course, the value of what had been given to them. The same is true of unbelievers. When we try to judge them, According to Christian standards. It doesn't work. Because they haven't accepted the standard. We need to remember that. How many times has the church broken out against some kind of horrible thing or you've attacked somebody and they throw it right back in your face because they've never given to that? easy for us as Christian husbands to say, well, Bill, that's wrong. That's wrong. We're not to accept what we're offering to others. Good. Because if we didn't, what do you say? What's wrong for us to expect non-believers to live up to the standard that Christ has given? 
And if we do, trying to do so, we'll find them reacting the way Solomon warned us in Proverbs 9. He said, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. If we reprove an unbeliever, we better expect to feel his fury. If, however, we reprove a brother and it's done carefully and compassionately, we should love that brother. After all, we do have a responsibility to judge another. Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 5 when the Corinthian church was trying to ignore an immoral situation in the church. Paul told them to remove the immoral man from their midst, and then he explained, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? If you're outside, God judges and removes the wicked man from the church. He uses some terminology here that's pretty harsh. So-called brother. Someone who claims to be a brother but yet wants to continue in sinful behavior. Whether it's coveting, Worshipping something unfitting or living a life of partying or drunkenness or swindling. You can't be a swindler without first a swindler, shouldn't you? Obviously that's the application for the person who says they're a Christian. Then you have to be judged as that brother. Anyone who claims to be a brother and wants to maintain a life of sin and death is to be called out by God. Then to be unloving is to call evil. And if we do it lovingly and graciously and mercifully and understanding, that test the church, but it is our responsibility to judge those within the church. We should judge them graciously and mercifully. The time may come, however, that ultimately the church is called for. Paul called for the situation in Corinth, including the man Crispus. Now he makes it clear what the purpose was. 
write the second letter, he says, okay, it works. Welcome him back. Thank God for that. So the expulsion of the sinful brother is not our first response. Jesus made that very clear. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, he outlined the procedure that we can follow when sin is discerned in a brother's life. He says, and if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. Listens to you, that's your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Then the accuser will listen to them as part of the church. And if he refuses to listen even to them, let him be to you as a Gentile Even then, the goal is restoration. We must never forget that he's our brother. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians or 2 Thessalonians, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him, so that he may be put to shame, and yet do not regard him as an enemy. And in Galatians 6, he says, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We have an obligation to bless our brother. And as James reminds us in James 5, Brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way saves his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Some months ago, Greg was with me, Greg, came to me for help down there. And he says, he tells me that he's going to get to the soul stage ever much that he can. Is the one who is sinning or the brother who causes the temptation? Great question. My best answer is both. Both. We can redeem a brother. And the way we redeem him is the way we're going to be redeemed. We can forgive a brother. And the way we forgive him is the way we're going to be forgiven. We're to judge them the same way we would judge the behavior of a wayward son or daughter. We could help them see their sin and get the speck out of their eye before it could blind them. And if we are to become like Christ, we're going to have to hold one another accountable to the standard that we live by. That means we will have to judge another. We judge each other mercifully and compassionately. Be 
taking one another's goods to the good pleasure of the one who